Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by the Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the game industry. Visit us online at IndieGame.Business to get your free pass to our next digital event coming December 8th, 9th, and 10th, where you'll have more great sessions you can participate in for free and inexpensive passes to our industry-leading digital business-to-business meeting system. Also, make sure to donate to Extra Life. We've got a link down below in the description, or you can even join the Indie Game Business Extra Life team. That link is down in the description as well. Here we go, Indie Game Business. Welcome to Indie Game Business. I'm Jay Powell. Uh, Indie's got the day off, so it's just going to be myself and Bill. And so, oh, and see, now I've got like all this other stuff popping up. So, uh, Bill is the CEO and president of Mastiff Games, and they have been publishing both here in the U.S. and more importantly over in Japan for almost 20 years now. So one, congratulations on that, Bill. But you know, we're going to be talking about the Japanese market with indie games and what you need to know publishing there, how it differs from the West, all sorts of things that uh, that you need to know. And so if you've got questions, no matter where you are, where you're listening on YouTube, Twitch, or Twitter, or Facebook, or uh, wherever, drop them in chat. We'll get to them and we'll discuss them live. Um, Bill will answer your questions. And so with all of that, Bill, tell us a little bit about how you got into the industry originally and, you know, walk us through what you've been doing for the last 20 years. I lost a speech contest. Okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's actually kind of a good piece of the story. Or um, since we have a few minutes, and although it's, you've now moved to the camera so people can't see it, I noticed you were wearing a Carolina um, hoodie. Yes. Um, yes. Um, Apple Thrill. Um, one of the greatest, actually, it's one of the greatest schools in the world and has produced some amazing alums. Um, and I went to school sort of, you know, within 20, 30 miles of oh, Carolina. I think I think around 17 miles, actually. <laughs> there you go. Um, and, and that actually fits into this whole thing. So you asked a broad question. It's a leisurely Friday. I'll give you kind of a broad response. So um, when I first got into college, you know, my thought was, okay, great. So somehow I've gotten into a college that's kind of unexpected, but I'll take it. Um, and I'll work hard and I'll probably do okay. But guess what? There are a lot of people going to colleges who work as hard or harder than I do and are as smart or way, 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 way smarter than I am. Um, and, and by the way, I matriculated in 1983. Um, and that was a time when, you know, it was 
we had a different set of problems than we do right now, but the Arab oil shocks refresh in people's minds. We come out of a recession. Um, if you're my age, you remember growing up with stagflation. You know, the world felt like a wonderful place, but also one you had to take seriously. Um, it wasn't shopping malls and games on the internet. Um, so with that mindset, I started college knowing that it was going to be tough. And I looked around and said, okay, what can I possibly do um, to make myself an easy hire out of school? And um, the really good answer would be, well, why don't you like double major in computer science and biomedical engineering? Um, and the, the response to that is that's a wonderful idea. Unfortunately, I think I would last about 20 minutes in those classes. I don't think that is on anyone's plan for my life. Um, so I looked around and said, okay, what is the easiest way to make myself desirable after graduation? And I said, you know what? A pretty cheap way to do it is find something for which there is a lot of demand and not a little and not much supply and is fairly obtainable. Um, and I was like, okay, I got it. I'll learn a useful but somewhat obscure language. And again, it's 83 when I started. This was also when Japan was kind of exploding. And it was right after sort of the um, Arab oil shocks. So it's like, okay, great. So the two languages that have to be in demand right now are Japanese or Arabic. Um, you know, which would, and it's like, okay, so who, where would you rather hang out? Like Jihad? Or Tokyo. It's like, well, okay, I think I have the answer to that one. Um, and so I, you know, took a class, I took an intensive Japanese program between in the summer between high school and college at Berkeley, which by the way is where I'm talking to you from right now. Um, went to college. Uh, freshman year, I did exactly what you're supposed to do freshman year, which was fall head over heels in love. Um, sophomore year, I did exactly what people do sophomore year, which is fall head out of heels out of love and decide I need to get away from here. This is not a happy place right now. I was like, I know we have an exchange program. So spent my junior year abroad. Um, in Japan, um, came back, then senior year. So um, I should mention that in high school, I had a kind of a great part-time job. Other people delivered newspapers or, you know, were busboys or whatever. But my senior and junior year of high school, I participated in every speech contest offered. Um, Elks Club, Optimist Club, Veterans of Foreign War, whatever it was. And it was like the greatest racket ever because I usually won. And if you won, you got, you know, $100, $200, $300 savings bond. But you got to go leave class, leave school legally, get a lunch, um, hang out with one of my favorite teachers. Um, and, you know, if you're doing one of these a month, you know, you're making basically $400 an hour. So with that mindset, um, senior year, and um, this is why I mentioned where Jay, the town where Jay and I went to school, um, had just built something called Research Triangle Park, which is a big sort of technical wannabe Silicon Valley um, around Chapel Hill, Durham, North Carolina. Um, and a company whose name I'll mention, um, Mitsubishi had this huge chip foundry they built and were very proud of, and they sponsored this Japanese language speech contest. And it's like, okay, I'll, I'll join this. Why not? Long story short, um, I walked in, of course, expecting to win it because I'm like the smartest, greatest person you will ever, ever, ever meet. Um, and of course, they had another opinion and gave me third place. Um, I don't remember who won second. Nancy Hankus um, 
who I still remember to this day as one of the nicest, smartest, and cutest people I've ever met, waltzed into first. Um, I was not terribly pleased with this result, um, but after the contest, this guy approached me and was like, hey, listen, you know, my name is, um, I'm a recruiter, and my friend runs this company, it's 30 people, we make video games, we're looking for, you know, someone who would like to um, help us in development, and it's a Japanese company, and maybe um, help start an American office. And, you know, I, at that time, I was obviously looking for a job and all the job opportunities I had were with these big, big companies. Um, and the thing about big, big companies is even if you're super smart and super brilliant, which I make no claim of being, it's almost impossible to stand out. I mean, you know, it's like going to a high school of 50,000 versus 50, you know, the big high school has advantages, but if, if your goal is to sort of pop to the front, it's a lot harder. Um, and so, long story short, I accepted the offer. Um, it was co was a company called Koei. I was, I think, employee twenty eight. Um, you know, I was in what was called the design room. Um, it was one long desk, and Mr. Eric Hauer, who's the president of the company, sat two chairs away from me. Um, worked really hard. Um, was able in nine months to produce two games. Um, Romance of the Three Kingdoms and Nobunaga's Ambition for the U.S., um, which was really a rush. I loved it. Um, and it was just a great fit. And so Koei said, okay, great. You built it. You sell it. So I was then back in the U.S. This is sort of, um, God, what year is this? 89, 88, 89. Um, and I got with it, with one other person from Koei, who was very much my mentor, um, guy named Horiguchi to set up Koei America. And this was an incredible opportunity, you know, chalk one up for better lucky than smart um, for two reasons. One, just being able, you know, at that age and coming in with no experience, no nothing um, to go through setting up and running a software business from ground zero is just an incredible blessing. Then on top of that, all the American video game companies, or at that time, it wasn't even really video games. It was more just PC games. You know, it was just really becoming a console-dominated market. Um, we're trying to get into Japan. And so, of course, they'd come to Koei because it was a known, although it wasn't as big as it is now by any means whatsoever. Like I said, I was employee, I think 29 um, Japanese company, and they come to me and it was bizarre because here I am, this, you know, 22, 23 year old kid um, who honestly, you know, someone had to water every morning. Um, <laughs> but they didn't know that. And it'd be like, you know, it'd be the presidents of all these companies. I, I could name them. Be like, hey, Bill, you know, this is Bill whoever, you know, um, can you help me out here? And so that was a great way to learn the industry. That that was really, really good. Um, so I was at Koei, left Koei, um, which was a bittersweet moment. But, um, you know, there's just sort of a very different vision on how to run the American office. Um, and so I went out and I looked for a real job and, you know, I wrote all these really cool companies um, and they were like, nah, <laughs> it's like, well, can you be more clear? Sure. Nah. <laughs> okay. I think I got it. But there was one company. Um, there was one company that um, was close enough 
to where I was living. I had the most incredibly great apartment. It was $500 a month. It was on a hill overlooking San Francisco airport. So I could see the apron from my living room. It was big. It was perfect. I loved it. It was, you know, a 40 minute commute from there. Um, they were willing, mostly because they're rumored to be going out of business, so no sensible person would ever go work there, you know, to match um, my somewhat inflated COE salary. And, you know, my thought was, if this works, um, it works great. And if it doesn't work, you know, what have I really lost? So um, that was a company called Mediagenic. Um, and f yes, I see the smile on your face. So for you deep, deep history buffs out there, um, way, way, way back in the dark ages, um, this was before electricity, actually, um, there, there was this incredibly successful company called Activision. It was the fastest growing company in America for like six years running. And that was way back in the Atari days. Um, then Atari, as we all know, crashed and burned. Um, and I don't even want to put a date on this. Someone could probably Google it for me. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to guess 84, 85, maybe. I don't know. Um, but anyway, it crashed and burned and took um, the company Activision mostly with it. So Activision's assets, which was the greatest library of games on the planet at that time, were purchased by this conglomerate, which decided it would launch this incredibly successful company. And um, Activision would become one of its brands. So Activision um, was renamed Mediagenic. Um, the same group, by the way, went out and bought out Infocoms or Infocom for those of you who remember like the original Zork and so on. Um, and they had like 10 brands, Activision, Infocom, uh, I think 10.0, which was like the perfect sports score. So that's going to be their sports brand. Um, and the whole thing was actually pretty badly run and pretty disastrous. Um, so it also lost a um, major lawsuit, um, which was an interesting thing. It was a patent infringement thing. Um, and that pretty much put it underwater. Now, while this was going on, there was a genius by the name of Bobby Kotick um, out of Ann Harbor, Michigan, who was a very young, at the time, early 20s entrepreneur. Um, Bobby Kotick, Howard Marks, and Brian Kelly put together a group um, to buy a distressed company and rebuild it um, with the backing of Steve Wynn of, you know, Las Vegas, the Wynn. Um, and so Bobby picked up Activision, which was basically in, or I should say Mediagenic, which was basically at this point in bankruptcy, um, and took control of it. Now, I should back up a second and say, you know, six months before this happened, you know, it was obvious that um, the company really wasn't as much distress as everyone said. So I looked around and said, okay, what in this um, dumpster fire is actually kind of working? And that was a very easy answer because there was only really one thing that was working. Um, and that was the Japan office. There's a small Japan office called Mediagenic Japan. So um, it I got myself sent there to help out for three months. That got extended for six months. Um, then Bobby and his group came in. Um, we had what was referred to as a company outing. Um, 
as in you're out and you're out and you're out. And you're out. <laughs> not um, the fun kind, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, not the fun kind. So we went from 100 and I don't know, I'm making this up, 150, 180, 140, somewhere in there. Um, to, I think it was five people overnight. Um, I was, exactly. I, I was one of those five people. Um, and so, you know, in this situation, I said, I have nothing to lose. I um, went out, I got really aggressive about collecting some debts that were owed us in Japan, um, mostly from these companies that figured, okay, you know, we owe them money, but they're going out of business, so we probably don't have to pay. And if we don't pay them, then they go out of business even faster, and we definitely don't have to pay. Um, so I was able to do, so I was able to collect some money, which at the time was, you know, a big, big, big deal. You know, now I don't think it would be a catering budget for a week, but at that time it was, you know, a year of operational expenses or something. Um, and then went out, did a few more deals. And then, um, I remember I had a call with Bobby who said, you know, and I remember this like yesterday, you know, try not to mess anything up until I can find someone competent to run the Japanese operation. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so that's, that's a stirring vote of confidence right there. It is. Um, then a little bit later, I, I'd done a couple more deals. I'd made a little more money for the company. Um, and, and I will say um, it was just a good fit. I really believe the new management, um, Brian Kelly, who is now co-chairman, is one of the finest men I've ever met. And honestly, I would work for him again for free just for the privilege of working for him. And by the way, for the listening audience, I'll say, number one, the best thing you can ever get isn't a great salary. Um, it isn't a really lush, fully stocked cafeteria. It's a mentor um, who will make you see things differently and bring out the best in you. And I, I was very, very lucky to have that. So anyway, next conversation was, okay, um, I'll tell Dickhead he's off the case. You're in charge, referring to my then boss. <laughs> um, and, you know, I continued to run Activision Japan for 11 years, I think. Um, I'm happy to say that during 10 of those 11 years, um, we were the number one or number two operational group at Activision. Um, you know, I remember the first time at Activision when I I was in Tokyo this whole time when I called the office in Santa Monica um, and put in a wrong extension and got someone I didn't know. And I was shocked because the company had grown to like 30 people. And I remember time many, 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 many years later when I got, when I again made a mistake putting in an extension, I got someone I did know. And it was equally shocking because at that time it was, you know, 700 people. Um, but I wanted to come back to the United States. Um, I did, really didn't want to live in Santa Monica. You know, the company had changed a lot. So in 2000, 2001, you know, we had a parting of ways. Um, and then I founded Mastiff. Um, and the initial model with Mastiff was to leverage the Japanese infrastructure against foreign markets, which is a nice, fancy way of saying pick up products in Japan to publish um, abroad. And that worked really well for a number of years. Um, then in sort of 2006, 2007, the Japanese console market exploded. Uh, and I don't mean exploded as in took off. I mean, it was decimated. You know, Japan was in a pretty severe recession and the online, not excuse me, online, the mobile gaming space had taken off incredibly. And it was like virtually every entertainment dollar um, that would have gone to video games 
went to mobile phones. Um, so we kept our office in Japan, you know, among other things, my partner is there. And it was a great place to do development, even if we weren't selling a bunch of stuff there. And in fact, during this period, we weren't selling things ourselves. We were doing everything under license. Um, and then, like, say, from 2006 for quite a ways forward, you know, with our ability to pick up stuff in Japan limited, we were doing some deals, but it just wasn't a good market anymore. Oh, and I should add um, that because the domestic market for console games has gotten so bad that not only were there fewer of them available, you know, the Japanese console producers had all consolidated or gone out of business. And those that were open to licensing their stuff had learned that, you know, foreign markets weren't an afterthought. Um, they were the one way of making money. So they began to market their stuff to publishers there very aggressively. So anyway, we developed some other lines of business. Um, that's where, for example, um, our heavy fire series came from. Um, I swore I would never ever, and then jumping ahead quite a bit because I don't want this whole thing to be a monologue. I swore I would never ever 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 um, publish product in Japan myself. Um, it's a very difficult place to do it. Traditionally, foreign games have been kind of rejected. Traditionally, it's really hard for foreign businesses to get a foothold. I didn't want to do it. Um, it was not to say I didn't want to do business there. I just thought the easy and smart and cost-effective way would be to license the products, you know, give the rights to a Japanese publisher, let them publish it for you. Um, and then a couple of years ago, we had a product called Home Sweet Home, which is a really, really cool horror game. Um, it felt just right for the Japanese market, really believed in the product, went to Japan um, to license it. And we looked around and we got a lot of interest in the product. You know, most publishers that looked at it were like, you know what? You're right. This would really click. This is really good. Um, the problem is no one wanted to pay for it. I mean, the deals I, we were being pitched was like, okay, uh, are you serious? I mean, it was like, we'll tell you what. We'll give you 50 bucks, a Starbucks gift certificate, and a pickle. Hey, the pickle could be good. Well, I'm not sure they were Vlasics. I think they might have been like a little sliced hamburger dills. And I'm like, you're going to give me a pickle. I want a good delicatessen pickle. Not a whole pickle. pickle. Just yeah, yeah a whole pickle. This is an incredible video game. It's worth a pickle. So it was like, you know what? Um, I get it. So um, we published we published um, Home Sweet Home ourselves. Um and, you know, because we'd been in the business for a long time, and in fact, very early in the Activision days, we had published software in Japan before, you know, we kind of knew the distribution, we kind of knew the system, and it worked, and it wasn't that hard. Um, and so, and maybe it was beginner's luck, but, um, and, and we did a lot, I mean, you know, we did a ton of PR, we got incredible, again, go back to better lucky than smart um we lucked into i think it was 15 late night tv spots you know in the adult block sort of 11 p.m to 1 a.m which is perfect for a horror game that um one of the local 
served, not local. I mean, they served, you know, 25 million people that one of the TV, Tokyo TV broadcasters basically dumping at the last minute. And we picked it up for cash for a song, you know, and two or three days we repurposed one of the videos we'd done and we had a TV commercial, which, you know, really helped our self, our initial sell through, which makes you look good to the retailers, which sets up a virtuous circle where they believe in the products so they do more. So they believe in the products so they do more. Um, and then, you know, I had a um, very, very important insight. Um, you remember I mentioned earlier that one of the best things that can happen to you is having the right mentor? Yeah. There's a man who, um, I don't know if I can call him my mentor because we don't have a personal relationship, um, but who I, I take very seriously um, and who I think should be an inspiration to all of us. Um, and that man is Dick Jones, Senior President, Omni Consumer Products. That's a new way. So, so what does he do? Dick Jones, Senior President, Omni Consumer Products. Um, among other things, he oversees he oversees the Security Concepts Division, um, which produced ED two hundred nine, Enforcement Droid two hundred nine, the hot military product of the next ten years. Um, he's also a character from RoboCop. It's been so um, many years since I've seen that. <laughs> exactly. And anyway, Dick Jones says good business is where you find it. And that is the Japan story. So, and I didn't really, you had even more experience in that market than I, than I thought you did because I completely forgot that you, you ran the Activision arm there for so many years. Oh, yeah. So, what has changed? You know, how, I mean, aside from, I mean, obviously mobile phones disrupted everything because that was, they, they absolutely took off in Japan and with everybody commuting and that was a huge deal. But I mean, aside from, from that part of it, how has the Japanese market changed in like the last five or 10 years? Oh my God. I mean, um, <sighs> It has been restructured in a fundamental and really violent way. And I, I think it's actually reasonable um, to take a step back and look at what's happened to Japan. Because, I mean, we look, obviously, I think, you know, we tend to be sort of inward focused as Americans. Well, everyone is going to be inward focused. They're going to look at what's around them, right? And say, wow, this country has been through a lot of changes. Um, but it's been nothing like what Japan has seen. I mean, um, in the 90s, Japan was growing at an incredible clip. It felt itself incredibly rich. You know, poverty was unknown. Um, and it also, probably because it had this sort of hyper growth, was able to maintain a really old kind of system, which was very much consume, excuse me, very much production focused um, in the sort of traditional Japanese system. You had producers who then sold product into middlemen, who then sold product into retail. Um, and then the consumers bought it. And it was very much a one-way thing. It ran exactly downhill. Um, and when the producer shipped to the distributor, the distributor paid the producer. Um, when the retailer took possession of the product, the retailer um, paid the distributor. And when the consumer bought the product, the consumer paid the retailer. Um, and that was the way it worked. Now, Japan has 
over the last 20 years, I said, gone through these incredible eruptions. So it's no longer a wealthy country. I mean, it's still a wealthy country, but for the first time, poverty is a big deal in Japan. Um, Japan has been through three, four huge natural disasters. We've had some disasters who's nothing like Japan. Um, you know, the um, first set of earthquakes in Kobe in the 90s, that's what, 20,000 souls lost, you know, two or three major eruptions, Fukushima. Um, you know, you're talking, and more importantly, a country that has gone from being the envy of the world, being the economic system of the world. You know, there's a time when the land the Imperial Palace sat on was worth more than all of California, for example, to um, being a country that is running incredible deficits. Um, as I say, is experiencing poverty for the first time, is experiencing underemployment for the first time, um, has a workforce that is aging far, far, far faster than it's giving birth. Um, which means it's going to have, it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse because it doesn't have enough people earning money to support its retiring population. These are huge, huge seismic shifts. Um, and together with these shifts, the entire retail business and the entire business structure has changed in a bunch of ways, good and bad. I hate to say it, but mostly for the good. It's just a shame it took such terrible, terrible, terrible costs to make them happen. So I was talking a minute ago about the traditional Japanese sort of chain of value, right? Um, the American chain of value is really different. End of the day, the American chain of value is about um, the consumer. So the way it works in America is a product gets to retail, um, sometimes through a distributor, usually not anymore which is also different from the way Japan was and the way from Japan is becoming. Um, the consumer buys the product from the retailer. The consumer usually later through credit pays the retailer, and then the retailer pays the manufacturer. That's the way it works in the U.S. So in the U.S., every sale is essentially a consignment sale. Um, Whereas in Japan, traditionally, you know, it's a one-way sale, and that's huge. And that's why, by the way, in America, you can pretty much always return a product, you know, with very few exceptions. You don't like something, you bring it back, and you'll get your money back. In Japan, for all its good customer service, the reason retail prices are traditionally inflated and there are no returns is because it's a one-way sale. It's already been paid for. Now, that is beginning to change in Japan. It's becoming much more like America. Um both in a good way and the consumer is beginning to become somewhat empowered and a bad way in that um, it's not a hundred percent guaranteed payment flowing from the bottom to the top. You know, the consumer has actually sort of gone in charge. Um, so that's one big change. Um, it's actually, I think that change has come a little more slowly to video games and other industries, but we're definitely seeing it. Um, another big change, and this goes back to, I think the string of natural disasters plus the social upheaval, and I should add, by the way, um, a lot of things that Japan didn't think would happen to it is happening. You know, increase in single parent families, for example, um, increase in people living alone, the sort of whole dissolution of um, the nuclear family um, has brought with it, I think, a kind of humility um, or certainly a this is complicated and mixed, and answering this fully isn't a discussion as a PhD thesis, but um, 
I think it's a valid generalization that in many ways, Japan is open to foreign influences in a way it never was before.、Um, and you see that all over. I mean, foreigners are still somewhat rare in some places, but something like 4% of all marriages in Japan right now involve a foreign partner. Now, some of that is still poor.、Um, Sort of villagers, poor farmers marrying people from third world countries、um, who are sort of bought. But a lot of that is just because it's become internationalized.、Um, and I think another place you see it is in consumption of video games. You know,、um, you go back 20 years ago, you go back even 10 years ago, and with a very few set of exceptions, with a very, very few exceptions,、um, all you had to say something about. Say about a game as a foreign game. There's a Japanese semi-derogatory word for it, yoge,、um, and it's like, oh, I get it. It doesn't suit us, and that was it. That would shut down the conversation completely. Say no more,、um, and that's pretty much vanished.、Um, now people might look at a foreign game and say, you know, is it a good game? Is it localized well? Does it make sense? You know,、um, and there's a lot of slipshod stuff out there, but this the World I was dealing with,、um, you know, in the '90s, where it was the most incredibly clear structural barriers to foreign games. I mean, it was incredible. I mean, it was like it was really sort of, for want of a better word, it, it was a grossly unfair market. That's totally gone. And even the situation in the early thousands, where you know, we'll think about it, but this sort of, well, it is a foreign game, but maybe it's kind of gone.、Um, Honestly, so long as a game can stand on its own merits, I think by and large the Japanese game-consuming population no longer cares in the least where it came from. I don't think we're in a situation yet like we are war at least re- until recently with movies, where foreign movies are presumed to be better, which is also something that I think is changing. And now Japanese movies are taking market share again,、um, but I don't think that. Um, foreign video games are any longer presumed to be worse, and that is a huge change. So, is it? I mean,、uh, the Japanese market for for years has been very focused on on console and mobile, with PC dragging pretty far behind. Is that changing, or is it still? I don't think so. I don't think so. It's it's still pretty much console and, and mobile then and mobile, but and I'm, I'm making up numbers. Don't quote me. I mean, for a long time, it felt like it was about ninety eight percent mobile, and you know, over the last five years,、um, it feels like the console market has really picked up, or maybe to put it more rigorously,、um, the console market has picked up and it's become a market in which there is at least some room for something other than you know the top twenty titles. You have got to check out our Discord at discord.gg/indiegamebusiness. It's an amazing community of over 3,500 other industry experts. We've got developers, publishers, marketing and PR firms, investors, so so many, so many. It's safe and supportive place to network and to talk to experts. You can learn more about the business of games, or you can share what you know with others. We have exclusive workshops on perfecting your pitch deck. Finding a publisher and more. Remember, it's Discord.gg/indiegamebusiness. That's that's interesting. I'm always curious as to how those shifts 
you know, take place. All right, I'm going to jump to a question real quick because chat is is flowing, and otherwise, I'm going to forget it. This one's I'm for only going to answer if I can use a RoboCop quote. Well, I, if you can pull one in for this question, I'll be very interested. Okay, so this is from from Mike Greasy on, on LinkedIn. He says, "Jay and I, past you and I've discussed publishers historically do not look at do not look to partner with e-learning games. Do you and Bill foresee that trend continuing?" Or is now the time for a game with e-learning elements to try to engage publishers considering the current massive global focus on remote learning solutions? Um, I mean, I'm going to say to ask the question is to almost answer it. Um, I mean, first off, one of the, the good news and the bad news about the gaming market right now is it's so fast. Um, you know, it's bad news because it's hard to get attention. It's good news because the barriers for putting out stuff um, are almost zero. I mean, you can get a game up online with almost no effort. Um, I'm not comfortable saying e-learning hasn't worked because it's not a market I know enough about. Um, I do know that things that I would that certainly have learning elements in it have done have done okay. And I know that fitness games, which no one would have expected, you know, up until the release of the Wii have been just bananas. Um, I, I would say it's really not about what publishers want per se. Um, you know, if I'm going to use another quote from way, way, way back, I'm going to quote Grandmaster Flash and say, you know, it's all about the money. Ain't a damn thing funny. Um, so if you have... It, engaging content, you should be able to demonstrate convincingly you have engaging content. Maybe it's not a huge demonstration, but it's like, look, you know, we got 30,000 downloads. Yes, it's a free app. We got 30,000 downloads on the eShop. You know, we can show that people spend time with our app. Um, you know, look, we were able to get this much attention on Steam, whatever it is. And once you have that kind of proof of concept, and it's like, look, folks, this is a business and e-learning is huge and it's just the right time. I have to believe that you'd have no trouble finding a publisher who's interested in working with you. Um, it just comes down to making a sort of reasonably plausible case about why, not about your category, but about your product, your model, your franchise. For so many years, just the phrase edutainment was a death stroke. You know, it's, it's like once everyone got past, uh, who was it? mech way back in the day with um, yeah exactly yeah. you know there really hasn't been any successful publishers that are like okay let's put educational content but you know I, and i know mike and, and mike full disclosure mike's a client of ours and he's working on a really really cool e-learning platform and so that's where he and i've been having those discussions it's like you know you're probably right now better off going and, and, and self-publishing it if you've got the talent and money to do so because, you know, we can look down at the market and say, okay, look, you have a platformer for console. Here's like 120 publishers that are a good fit for it. But it's harder with, with educational games because they do. They just still have this stigma of, you know, it's not going to be good. Let's just slap a license on it and, and parents will buy it. Well, you know what you might do on that too? And I'm just thinking out loud, utterly unburdened by any knowledge, um, <laughs> is slap a different, is reframe it. And I think the label you can slap on it, would, which does get really good uptake, is not educational gaming, but gamification. 
because everyone knows everything is gamified. And that's cool. Gamification is cool. I hate that word. <laughs> I hate that word because so many people from outside the industry claim they're going to gamify something. And then they basically put an achievement system in it and that's it. And it's like, that's not gamification. There's a lot that goes into this that is far more than let me just put some achievements in, in this title. But yeah, you know, I, I, I do get it. And so I'm very close to this situation right now because I have a, a third grader, an eight-year-old. Oh, I'm sorry, nine-year-old. Oh, very uh, different. Yes, very different. And that that's about three weeks, you know, in to, to nine-year-old that you know, we're watching right now and, and it's, we've never considered homeschooling. He's doing a virtual academy through the public school system, but there's days that we're just like, I don't know that this is working. And, you know, what are we going to have to do to, to get around it? So it's, if there was ever a time that the quote unquote education publisher was going to come back, you know, it's now because there's so many parents are looking at this stuff. Um, all right, anyway, so that's awesome because I always like getting other feedback on, the, on that type of stuff too. So we've got an indie game and we I'm want- you've got to, a what, say it again? I said we've got, a, uh, we've got a hypothetical indie game. Okay. And we want to get it published in Japan. What are the, the key things that we have to do and what are some of the things that it's it's good to do if you want to you know be successful in the market? All right, I, I'm going to give what may be a really annoying answer, so please bear with me. Um, and the first thing I'm going to say is this is entertainment. Um, there really are no rules, and every time someone comes in and says I've got it figured out, someone else just totally does it their own way. Um, and there is such a thing as magic, you know, it, stuff can just get picked up and explode of its own and it just happens. That's unusual, but it does happen. Um, so that said, here's the way I would approach it to increase your chances of a good outcome. And it, it's, I'd say it's basically block and tackle. Um, I've, the first question you need to ask is, are you talking about retail or online distribution um to make actually i'll go a step well i'll go even beyond that um i think the first question you need to ask is what are you what do you want to invest in it what are your ways of doing it um so i'm assuming because you said indie this is not a company that has the resources to go out and put its own people on the ground in japan yes um, Okay, and that means you need to either do everything by remote control, which is doable now, um, or partner with a local company. And they both have their pluses and minuses. Um, I think to maximize your chances, you need to do the same kind of social media block and tackle you do in any market. It's not any different. Um, you know, you need to be out, you, you, you stack the deck in your favor, you know, if you're on Twitter if you're interacting with your fans, if you're going to be, um, if you're going to be on a, if you're going to have a Facebook page, you better be updating it. Um, you know, if you have a site talking about how good your game is, make sure it's accessible in Japanese. That's just basic, basic stuff. Um, I think if you're looking to do big numbers, you're far better off working with a local partner. Um, 
because you do need to do make a constant sort of full court press. You do need to be able to interface with the Japanese media. You know, um, we've had tremendous luck, for example, with our release Fight Crab um, with Japanese TV. We were just on a show called um, the Adiyoshi Show, um, which is a lot like being on comedians in cars drinking coffee. I mean, it's almost a million viewers. And, and that came, by the way, um, not because we have these super incredible connections or, you know, my friend's father, you know, is also whatever. That was just because we did the basic block and tackle. Um, you know, we're pretty good at being on social media. We told an interesting story. We bugged the hell out of press um, to get coverage. And then um, they reached out to us and we were there on the ground and we were ready to supply the stuff they wanted and, you know, answer the questions and have the code and get players to help them and supply some graphics. But it was just block and tackle by being present. Um, so if you, if you, that's the case for working with a local publisher. And if you want to work with a local publisher, again, it's just a matter of finding out who you want to work with and basic sales. You know, reach out to them. Who has a good presence in Japan? Um, and how does your game help them? And approach them the same way you'd approach finding a publisher here. Uh, if you're like, you know what? It's an incremental market. Um, we just don't have you know, X hours a day or X budgets to approach it, but we also know it's important. Again, I would say then in that case, just get the basics right. First off, and this is something that's near and dear to my heart, um, and will is localization quality. Um, a lot of people, especially if they don't speak a foreign language, tend to think of localization is just copy typing in a foreign language. I mean, it's okay. So you like this, it's like this, this is cat in that language. This is dog in this language. Okay. I got it. And that's not the case at all. Um, unless of course, you know, you have a game that's pure action. You know, if there's six words on the screen and they're dead bonus and hyper score, you can probably get away without even localizing it. But you know, if you have a game that depends on language for the experience, um, take the time and make the spend to make sure you have not only a group that understands game doing it, you then have groups in the target language play testing it. Um, because it is good translation is an art form. It really is. I think it's one of those things that people underappreciate. Um, good translation under the best of circumstances in video games is really, really hard because it's nonlinear. Um, and, you know, when you translate from one language to the next, it's like you're throwing a spotlight. You cannot usually take an entire sentence which, with all its possible different nuances and connotations and then do a one-for-one -one translation so it has exactly the same kind of cloud around it. So you need to pick and choose. Um, and in a movie, that's easy because you see how sentence A connects to sentence B, connects to sentence C, connects to sentence Z, 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 Z at the end of the movie. But in a video game where, you know, you no idea how any adventure is going to unfold, um, it's a lot harder. And I, that doesn't get appreciated. So I would definitely invest in good localization and good localization testing. Um, and then beyond that, I would just make sure I understood what was happening in the local market. So I don't think I'm letting any big secrets go when I say Xbox effectively has no presence in Japan. Um, and you're, if you're like, you know what? 
Um, we've got this great deal with Microsoft, one of the greatest companies on earth. I have nothing but love and respect for them. Um, and we're not going to be releasing on any other platform for six months um, from our Xbox release, for example. It's like, okay, great. Um, that's fine. But then just understand that you shouldn't have Japan as being a big part of your sales plan. Uh, I will also say, as a sort of last thought, if you're serious about Japan, um, there are lots of good touch points for um, independence and people interested in the market. Unfortunately, it was canceled this year, but Bit Summit, which is the indie show, is fantastic. Um, there are at least two or three pretty respected indies gatherings. Um, you know, anyone that wants to spend an hour on Google and then another couple hours on Discord and Twitter can probably find 20 really good groups to hang out, make contacts at, um, shows to attend. And from there, just take it like you would any place else. So Pseudo Shadow had a good question I was going to ask anyway. Do you see that market share with Microsoft changing with the Series X, Series S? whatever we're calling the next generation. Okay, so first off, I can only speculate. I have no particular information. Any of us do, Bill. You're good. <laughs> okay. Um, I would be surprised. I, let's put it this way. I have certainly seen no evidence that Japan, that Microsoft is making Japan a tactical focus for them. Um, you know, they've had two really difficult experiences there. Um, they have an incredible business every place else. They have incredible other businesses in Japan. It, I certainly don't see it happening anytime soon. That would be my speculation. Do you think it would take them making a major acquisition like they did with Bethesda and just like quite literally buying their way into the market? <sighs> um. Again, um, these are, you know, literally some of the smartest people in the world. So I hesitate um, to write prescriptions. I will say this. Um, they made, when they launched the first Xbox, it didn't go well. Um, so they let go of just about their entire game team, which is understandable. It's a bit harsh, but they did kind of blow it. Hired a whole new team who made exactly the same mistakes again. Um, you know, and the thing about, making an acquisition, you know, is it still has to be managed, still has to be run. You know, everyone dreams like if only I had the world's fastest motorcycle, like the GT riders, you know, I would ride that well too. And it's like, no, they have good bikes and you know, world champion <laughs> marathon. You know, it's like, yeah, I can put you on one of those bikes. And guess what? I don't think you're going to do world class. Well, you might. You're J-Pal. But if you put me on one of those bikes, I'm not going to do a world class time. Um, and obviously, you're buying a company. You're buying more than just a piece of machinery. But there are some similarities. I mean, Microsoft, in their first two runs, spent a ton of money um, and didn't have the right approach. And it didn't work. So if the question is, if Microsoft got up tomorrow morning and said, we don't care. This is now strategic. We have to win in Japan. Could they do it? I'm sure they could. This is a company with unlimited resources um, and a history of eventually, although it takes them a while sometimes, succeeding in most things they do. Um, however, do I suspect, and again, I'm just speculating, that this is kind of like what happened with cell phones, where they tried it. They said, you know what? This is not a core strength. This is just not what we're focusing on. Um, you know, it's time to spend our chips where they make more sense. You know, we'd much rather turn, 
extreme dominance into incredible dominance, then turn no market share into, you know, a strong third. Um, I, that's what I think they would take. So I guess that's a long way of saying, could they? Well, of course they could. Would they? Probably not. Would it be easy? No, it would definitely even for them be a major expenditure of resources. And I doubt there's any one quick fix. It's, and that makes perfect sense. I mean, that's quite frankly the same way I feel about Amazon, you know, here and everywhere else. I mean, Amazon just launched, just announced their big cloud gaming thing yesterday. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. Amazon has unlimited resources. They bought Twitch for 10 years. They've been trying to get into games in a, you know, a, a way that's deeper than just Twitch and, and AWS. And they have categorically failed every single time. And so it's like, I don't. I don't get it. So, I mean, I completely understand that that analogy because it's it is something that you know not every company is is set to do. It's the reason that you know we don't have like that one go to publisher, for example, that does great on PC, console, and mobile because it's it's different skill sets. It's, it's completely different skill sets. Uh, yeah, and yeah, I know they I know they own you too sooner, <laughs> but the um, all right. So we've got a question from simon that's you know still along the signs of the the new generation because obviously that's on everyone's mind is do you think that the xbox game pass and the recent studio acquisitions and they've said we're not done acquiring companies do you think that's going to game changer and making the playstation economically endangered and you know we can even pull out from that a little bit i mean you publish you are a console publisher what do you think you know okay. hypothetically about the next generation okay well those are separate questions um yeah. and, and seriously you know what happens to sony and what happens to a game publisher so let me start with the most immediate one which is what happens as a game publisher um here's a fun fact a lot of people tend to assume that the number of units you sell is related to the number of hardware units out there you know um, if there's a system that has 10 million units out there, you should be able to sell X. And when they hit 50 million, Y is a reasonable expectation. And the answer is that is flatly untrue. That is absolutely not true with one small footnote. Um, yes, if you have a, a product that is in the, you know, say three to 10 million unit category, the total addressable market does become relevant. Um, but other than those very few titles that are in that, you know, say three to 10 million unit range, what the hell, call it one to 10 million units even, but I think it's more like three to 10 million units. The number of units um, of a console that has been sold is completely irrelevant to the number of units of a game you will sell. Um, and that's simply because as the number of, as the installed base increases, so is the number of games for it. Um, it also doesn't, so there's a number of games for it. Also, um, it doesn't really change the number of people who are going to be interested in one specific title. And, you know, we've seen this now through four or five generations. And it works on the way up. You know, the average title wasn't selling more, you know, when PlayStation first hit 20 million than it was when PlayStation was at 5 million. And conversely, I mean, I remember as recently as, you know, 2005, you know, this guy I knew who... Um, was a company that's now gone called Walashi that every year would release a new shooter on the Mega Drive. Um, 
which at that point had been a lot that'll extinct for God knows how long. And what, you know, at 70 bucks a pop, you know, like consistent with the law of gravity, sell 20, 30,000 units. Damn. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, unless your name is Activision or Microsoft or something like that, you know, I really don't wouldn't worry or you're preparing for a job interview. You got to look smart. You got to know the facts. Um, I, I really want to spend a lot of time stressing about hardware shipments. Now that said, is Sony endangered? No, my God, no. They've got some of the best brand brand names in the world. You know, their big problem is they can't make enough units to make their initial orders. Um, I mean, if you want to nitpick, it's like, yes, there is a case to be made that their launch titles look a little bit much like their, you know, last generation titles. It's not a lot bunch of new, new, new stuff, but whatever. No, that is one of the world's greatest companies. They are going to have an immensely profitable business on PS5. Um, and what those two systems, PS5 and, you know, Xbox look like three years from now, I wouldn't want to predict. But um, the one thing I will say is they'll both be doing just, just fine. Neither one of them is going away. But I'll tell you what. Um, I would like to make an offer right here, right now. Um, for those of you who do believe that PS5 is going away um, but have already ordered one, please send it to me. I will recycle it for you at no cost. <laughs> I'm also accepting donations of Rolex watches, which are these old mechanical things. You don't need them. Um, switches and currency. The, and pickles. I, so Along this line, one one of the big shifts that those of us who in the industry have looked at kind of like side-eyed for the last, you know, five or six years, but now are starting to take seriously is cloud gaming. Is what? Say again? Cloud gaming. You know. Con? Cloud. Oh, cloud. I'm so sorry. Yeah, cloud. Yes, yes, yes. How do you – have you experimented with any of that on, on your titles? And, and how do you see – that changing the landscape in the next few years? You know, that's a really good question. I mean, we went, um, now I'm blanking. What was the name of the company that Sony bought that turned into um, sort of their Sony Plus service and everything else? Um, was it what on Live? Say again? Uh, was it on Live? I know yeah. you were talking Is that yeah. it? I think it might have been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we, actually, we had a couple titles up with them. Um, you know, I, I would put it this way. I don't think the question is how the game is delivered. I mean, yes, there are some incredible systems that look like they can deliver, you know, a game instantly over the over a browser. Um, and those are going to be really neat. It's going to be just like Netflix. And my answer is whatever. Um, I think what matters is that large libraries are instantly available at a reasonable price. Now, whether you want to call that cloud gaming or download or just um, or whatever yeah yeah really doesn't matter so do i do i foresee cloud gaming being a big game changer the way moving from disk to the internet was no you know i see it as sort of you know an incremental convenience and maybe it's not going to be like it is now where i buy something on my old ps4 and you know takes 30 minutes to download or whatever you know that then became 15 and with this it'll be pretty quick and that's great but um 
And is it going to be more familiar because it's much more like sort of an extension of what people are kind of used to on mobile phones, I guess. Um, but I think it would be a mistake to conflate, you know, the fact that games have um, become part of the fabric of everyday life and they're really easily available. You know, like Coca-Cola is sort of always one within reach. Um, and the fact that you can now access them from the cloud. I mean, I, I don't see that fact in itself as being particularly material. I, I Now, I will say, and we're verging slightly off topic here, but you let me talk about RoboCop. So, um, you know, I do think that as much as cloud gaming is a thing, it might even be bigger for other kinds of remote computing. Um, and, you know, I think we'll get, you know, and this is something that Google's always dreamed of. I mean, that's what the whole sort of Chromebooks idea is about. But, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if you got to the point pretty quickly where there's so much remote computing power available and the communication lines were so fat. And by that, you know, I don't mean literally lines, but where, you know, anything you can do on your laptop, you can do on your desktop, you can do on your wristwatch, you can do on the dashboard of your car. And, you know, I think that's another sort of technology of, another extension of remote computing and technologies that minimize perceived lag and so on. But do I see cloud gaming per se as being that big a deal? I'm probably going to regret saying this when it gets played back, but no, I just see it as a sort of incremental improvement to delivery. I, I agree. You know, it, it's, I, I think my personal thought is, yeah, Sony's got the one game coming out at launch that I really want to play the, the new Spider-Man game. Yes. But not enough that I'm going to buy a $500 system that I'm then going to have to buy another $100 of other stuff for to play it. You know, I I think that Microsoft's xCloud game, it, it's not that it's like that killer app, but they're going to have a lot more content. And, and that's the that's the first you know, complaint everybody has, you know, about a month after they buy their console and they had that launch title they wanted to play and they're sitting there going, well, I don't have anything else to play. And they're going to have a, a head start on that. But at the same time, it's like you said, you know, there's still going to be a shitload of PS5 sold and a, <laughs> however many uh, Series X, Series S, which I don't know if you saw, but the fact that the... yes. Xbox One X had a 747% spike in sales on... Yes, I love that. It's going to be some very upset people when they open your boxes. Yes, there are going to be some very pissed off people. But that aside, yeah, they're going to be fine. You know, it's, it's yeah. not like it's going to be somebody's going to go away. The market can easily support three consoles now. Oh, and yeah. And I mean... And I will also say, just sort of going back to ancient, ancient history, like I remember, I think, and I'm sorry, I don't have a great memory. I think it was a PS2 that had that sort of impossible graphics pipeline. Um, and it took, you know, the industry two years to figure out how to do good graphics on it. Yeah. That's, I had a friend of mine, he was, we were talking about which console to order. And, you know, I told him, I said, if I'm ordering one, I'm ordering the Xbox. You know, and it's primarily me personally, it's primarily because I already have a Game Pass account, you know, and so it's just that much more stuff in there. And he said, But aren't you concerned that the PlayStation 5 has more computing? And I was like, No, I'm not. Tell me once in the history of consoles when that actually made a damn difference because the games come out on both of them anyway. And like you said, 
it's going to be three years before somebody knows how to fully tap into the hardware of these things anyway. So yeah. at the end and, of the day, it's content. Yeah. And I mean, and then obviously, you know, Nintendo is the counter example. I mean, Nintendo has been smart enough never to play the more power game. They've always oh, just yeah. found other ways to provide entertainment and it's worked great, obviously. Exactly. So I, I know, you know, I told you I'd try to keep this at an hour, which is usually a struggle for us on this show in the first place. But so if you've got any out, any other questions for Bill on Japan and gaming and the part that I have one more that we didn't even get to today, but I'll ask it in the meantime, uh, pop them in chat right now. We'll, we'll get them asked. Um, you've made not only a your move to publish directly in Japan, but you're doing retail in the U.S., correct? Correct. So, and retail in Japan. But all right. So, how has the retail market in the U.S. changed in the last couple of years? Because five, six years ago, everybody was, you know, determined that retail was was dead, and now we're starting to see not only you know people going back to retail, but we're starting to see stuff like you're doing with your the exclusive limited edition runs and, and all of that sort of stuff. So how has the physical box market changed and, and where do you see that going? Can I quote um, Mr. T from, I believe, Rocky Five? Yes. Pain. I predict pain. But you're doing it. Obviously, you're not the only one doing it. There are more. We're seeing more publishers go back to retail, even though, you know, Best Buy doesn't really have spots anymore. GameStop's floundering like it has been for years. But why is retail for, for games interesting again? I, I actually am going to sort of disagree with you and say it's just gotten harder and harder. Um I mean, we're doing far more retail in Japan than we are in the U.S. right now. And that's sort of just a function of the products we happen to have um, and the price points that the market support. Um, but no, I think there are fewer accounts that continue to take. Um, they continue to take fewer titles. Um, they continue to spend more of their budget on the AAA titles. Um, the... It, it, it's gotten I, I it's gotten much harder in the U.S. It's still there, you know. If you have a good game um, and you can meet with retail, um, they will often pick it up. Although you're more likely to be going through um, distribution channels that that take up a lot of margin. But no, it's just gotten harder and harder and harder. Um, in the U.S. and Japan has also, I don't want to make it sound too rosy. Um, we happen to have had great luck there. Um, and we've happened to have titles that click and we happen to have, you know, sort of the ability to do at least a good minimal level of marketing. But there are plenty of titles in Japan that go on sale and sell a thousand units. I mean, that is not that unusual. So no, um, for most titles, it's really difficult. And it continues also to be really capital intensive. Um, you know, I don't think I'm selling you any kind of industry secrets when I say for everything, especially for the Switch, especially in the U.S., you know, there are high minimum order quantities that have to be hit. Um, it's very unlikely you're going to get paid 
until such time as the consumer has brought it home, unless you're selling direct to consumer. And if you're selling direct to consumer, you know, you better have the marketing infrastructure and the brand name and so on. So the consumer wants to buy from you. Um, it's a really tough thing to do. You know, honestly, everything else being equal, you know, the shortcut to getting hyper rich, which is what everyone, of course, does every single time, would be to have a hit on Steam. Yeah. And that's nearly impossible these days, too. So it, it's, it comes back to what we always say. The business in this industry is hard. It is not something that you can do part time. It's something that takes a lot of work, a lot of effort and a lot of a lot of know how. Um, I had another question for you. Oh, OK. Yep. Yeah. So if someone is interested in having Mastiff publish their game, how should they get it in front of you? That is a wonderful question. Um, you could um, go to our site, mastiff-games.com, and there's a contact us link there. You can just click on that. Um, if anyone wants to write me directly, I'm B for Bill Swartz, S-W-A-R-T-Z, B Swartz at mastiff-games.com. You can get us that way. And so what do you want to see when they send their stuff in? What, what's the, the core details that you need to know when you're looking at a game? I would say make it easy for us. Um, you know, first thing, first thing I'll say is have a, have a presentation, you know, ideally sort of three to 10 slides. Who is the team? Have they done this before? Um, whatever, just sort of one slide, just tell us who you are. And that's important for a lot of reasons. Um, then a couple slides explaining the game. And then ideally a slide telling us what you want. You know, again, it's much easier if everyone's pretty much upfront. And if you're like, we're looking for finishing funds, that's great. If you're like, look, it's done. We just need a publisher. Um, that's great. You know, whatever it is. But I'm a great believer in open, honest discussion between adults. So I would say don't be coy. And we're perfectly capable, by the way, of pushing back. It's like, no, you know, that's ridiculous. Or, yes, that sounds good. But it's a lot easier when everyone just puts their chips on the table to begin with. Then if the game is um, playable, you know, don't send me a ROM or anything. But give us a link or give us a key. Um and don't be afraid, to, and we will look at it. It might take a while, um, but we will absolutely look at it. Um, and then don't be afraid to follow up. You know, we try to go through everything we get, but we do get snowed under. You know, like we just ship fight crap, and I guarantee you, you know, very few emails. That's not true. We actually answer. I will guarantee you that email responses to non-essential stuff slowed way down sort of two weeks either side of release. I mean, we're not a huge team. Um but feel free to follow up. But no, it's really about just reaching out and having an adult conversation. Look, here's who we are. Here's what we want. Here's my game. Oh, and the schedule would also be nice. And then we can look at it and go, yeah, this is really good. We'd love to work together. Or no, I'm you know, really sorry. We're just you know, not in a position to work with this kind of thing. Or it's like, no, this doesn't make sense. Here's why. Why don't we do that? I say I love it when when people agree with with what I say because <laughs> I'm the same way. I, I you know if you've got a budget that you need for the game, put it in the damn deck, and so yeah. we don't have to have this discussion on how much do you need. It's right there. I need this much money. Uh, Bill, thank you 
so much for, for coming and, and spending an hour with us this morning and, and talking about all the stuff that you've learned over the last few decades. Um, you can follow Mastiff Games on Twitter. It's, it's just simply at Mastiff Games. And then they're also on YouTube. Go to Mastiff.Games slash YT and Mastiff.Games slash FB for Facebook. I love how you did that, by the way. That's, that's, I had never thought of putting my links that way, but that's awesome. Um, and then, I cannot take credit. That is our genius marketing manager, David. That was that's I, I haven't seen that many people do that, and that's awesome. I'm going to totally steal that. Um, if you want to talk to Bill, he's also on our our Discord, so Discord.gg/indiegamebusiness. Um, and with that, we'll go let everyone go. If you've got uh, further questions, hit us on Discord, and do not forget uh, that the next pitch you game is going to happen next week on September 20. Oh God, let me check this or I'm going to get it wrong. I want to say the 28th. Um, have you seen that bill? I have not. Okay. So I feel like I should. It is, will be on my calendar. It is, it is really cool. The, it started earlier this year from, from Liam Twos and it basically a hashtag that runs on Twitter all day long where, develop it's uh, tuesday the 29th of september see i was going to be wrong but you you literally pitch your game in a tweet and get feedback there's tons of publishers watching um they've seen like nearly two thousand pitches since they launched in the first four rounds of this they do it once a month uh it typically ends up trending on twitter you know in some places so it's it's really cool um everybody check it out and yeah that that's it have a great weekend and thanks again, Bill. Any, any parting words? No, Jay. Um, thank you for your time. I had a blast um, and I look forward to seeing you soon again. All righty. Everybody take care. See ya. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at IndieGame.Business.